If you look on the back of your bulletins, Exodus, we're in Exodus chapter 2, but I want to play a little bit of catch up and set the stage for those who may not have been here last week. Exodus 1 starts with Israel in Egypt. Now Israel got to Egypt because Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery and he ended up in Egypt when he was sold in slavery by his brothers to the Midianites. You might want to remember that. Joseph was sold by his brothers to the Midianites. The Midianites will be significant here as we go through Exodus and the rest of the Old Testament if you continue to study it. So Joseph is sold into, as a slave into slavery into Egypt and then ends up working to one of the very top positions in the nation, saves Egypt and thus saves his family from death due to a famine that strikes. And so all of Joseph's family ends up moving to Egypt because they know that Egypt's doing well and they get reunited with this brother that they thought was dead. So then Exodus starts with the word and, connecting it back to Genesis and that story And then it goes into saying, and then arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. There's a Pharaoh comes to power that doesn't remember Joseph and what he has done for Egypt. And he's intimidated by the number of the Israelites. And so he tries to oppress them and make them work harder harder so that they don't grow and overpopulate and then end up helping and rebelling and overthrowing the kingdom. The harder he works them, the more they repopulate. So he decides to have the midwives at birth kill all of the male children of the Hebrews and let all of the female children live. The midwives don't do that. And they tell Pharaoh when he asks why that the the Hebrew mothers aren't like the Egyptian mothers and they're tough and resilient. And before the midwives even get there, they've already delivered. They're not whiny and prissy like the Egyptian women who can't handle childbirth. And so then he has one last ditch effort in which he tries to have all of the Hebrew male children under a certain age thrown into the Nile River. And that's significant because the Nile is a source of life for the Egyptians and for Egypt and the Pharaoh is turning it into a source of death for the Hebrews. And so as we looked at this, we saw the way in which God was there and moving, even though he seems to be absent. And in fact, it's noted that God seems to be absent clear through the end of chapter 2. And so the idea is that God is always with us and in control, even when it seems like he's not. That's what we learn when we look at Exodus chapter 1. Even when it seems like God isn't there He is, and he's in control, and there are hints of that throughout. I say that, and I remind us of that because that directly connects with what we're talking about today in Exodus chapter 2. If you want to go ahead and turn there, you can. It's page 45 in the Pew Bibles. But when we think about that being absent from God, I want to stick there for a moment. I don't know if, if there is ever a time when it's easy for us to feel abandoned by God. I think it's when it has to do with our children. When bad things happen to our kids, it is really easy for us to feel abandoned by God. Even when those bad things are happening to our kids because of their poor choices, and I think even more so maybe when those bad things are happening to our kids who are infants and not yet 
able to make poor choices. None of these Hebrew children could have done anything to deserve this. This wasn't the repercussions of their poor life decisions that they were suffering from. They weren't in jail because they made poor choices. They weren't in the hospital because they made poor choices. They were condemned to death because they were born the wrong gender. Which brings us to Exodus chapter 2. We're going to back up briefly and read verse 22 of chapter 1, and then we're going to go on through chapter 10 of verse 2. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him for, for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. Can you imagine the inner angst that his sister is feeling at this time? Because this death sentence was put in place by Pharaoh. And now Pharaoh's daughter is the one that finds this Hebrew child. And if anybody is going to be faithful to the command of killing these children, surely it would be the Pharaoh's own daughter. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then her sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, and when he became her son, she named him Moses. Because she said, I drew him out of the water. There are a lot of interesting things to note in this. The, one of the ones that a lot of people talk about is this idea that it says that when Moses' mother knew that when he was born, she noticed that he was a fine child, is what the ESV says. A lot of them translate it, he, was, he looked fine or he was handsome. And I think about, there is no mom in her right mind that doesn't look at her child and say, he is beautiful. Now, there are a lot of people that say there are no ugly babies, and I think those people haven't seen very many babies. Because even in their babiness, they may be cute, but some of them are really weird looking, I mean, there's this picture of Uriah and his head's just all misshapen and distorted and we think, but they're cute because they're babies and there's no mom that doesn't look at that no matter how misshapen the head and their body is and how crazy they look and doesn't go, this is so beautiful. And so there's a lot of speculation about this, but one of the things that is pointed out is that if we read this in the Hebrew, it literally just says his mother saw him and saw that he was good. 
And we're pointed back again to the creation in Genesis 1. If you remember Exodus 1, there is a lot of creation talk and there's a lot of connection to Genesis 1 and the creation mandate. In fact, some say that the biggest thing Pharaoh did was he set himself up against God because God said, be fruitful and multiply, and Pharaoh was attacking that very command of God. And so here what we see is this Hebrew woman has a child born to her and she sees him and much like God, when he's creating everything, She looks at him and says, he is good. And I can't just allow him to be thrown into the Nile River. And so she hides him for three months. This word ark, this basket that he is placed in, it's the word ark, it's the only other time other than in Genesis with Noah that this word ark is used. Which is interesting because both Noah and Moses were carried to safety on the very body of water that brings destruction to others. And both are the vehicles through whom God creates a new people. God repopulates the earth through Noah, and God creates his nation Israel through Moses. It's interesting because one of the speculations that we're left with is how many children were killed. How many made it out? How long did Pharaoh leave this decree? Because obviously, when Moses comes back, we know that there are other men his age. And there are other people his age, and there are children younger. And so, obviously, this wasn't a permanent decree, and there are things going on. But we know that Moses was saved, and she hid him for three months. This is an interesting aside that I want to mention, because... One of the things that we struggle with and our culture really struggles with, especially since like the 60s, is this supposed low view of women that Scripture has. Scripture always talks about the man being over the woman, and Scripture has a low view of women, and the the Bible is just demeaning to women. But if you look at what we've read so far, and if you look at the book of Exodus, when you remove God and when you remove Moses, there are one group of heroes left. And they are all women. You've got the midwives. You've got Moses' mother. You've got Moses' sister. You've got the Egyptian princess. And soon we will have Jethro's daughters. Apart from God and Moses, the key figures that are playing heroic roles in the book of Exodus are women. Scripture does not have a low view of women. You don't have Moses apart from these key women making the decisions that they make. It says that after Moses' mom nursed him and took him back to the princess, the Another speculation is how long did Moses' mother have him? Some speculate up to three years. She was nursing him until he was weaned, and he went to be raised as Pharaoh's daughter, and she adopted, or Pharaoh's son, sorry. Pharaoh's daughter's son. Let's get this right for a minute. Moses was adopted and went to be raised by Pharaoh's daughter as her son. We don't need any of our cultural things playing into this and skewing the text any on us, so... I want to articulate that clearly. And it says that she named him Moses. 
And there's some interesting things about this because what we see in Moses is a Hebrew name, which the meaning of the name as a Hebrew verb is the one who draws out. It's an active verb. You have passive verbs, things that are done to you, and then active verbs, things that you are doing. And the Hebrew word that is used is the active word. And Nahum Sarna points out that it would, we would expect it to be the passive verb. The ESV actually translates it as passive. She named him Moses because he was drawn out. But Nahum Sarna, the Jewish scholar, points out that the, the word that's actually used is the active form. It's the one who draws out. But we might expect it, the passive form, the one who was drawn out to be used instead. The reason that this is significant is that Sarna goes on to say that we may surmise and understand that the narrative is subtly suggesting and foreshadowing the role that Moses is going to play as Moses draws the people of Israel out of the Red Sea in victory over the Egyptians. He is the one who is going to go back and draw them out. And so Sarna speculates that the reason that the active verb is used is because it's pointing forward. It continues to point forward to what is done for, for the Hebrews. However, the other thing that's interesting is Moses is most certainly also an Egyptian name, and we wouldn't expect Pharaoh's daughter to use a Hebrew name. She's an Egyptian. She's pushing the limits a little bit by coming and raising a Hebrew child that her dad had condemned to death. But if you look at Egyptian history, there are a lot of kings whose names like Tutmos and others that have that most at the end. And that's one of the key words in many of the names. And it's indicated often when they're born on the holiday of one of the gods. And so it's it's understood that she gave him this Egyptian name that also had a Hebrew connection, and the writer of the book of Exodus is reinterpreting that name in light of Moses' destiny and what he is going to be doing, and he's going to draw them out. Now let's go back to this whole baby thing for a moment. We know that there are a lot of people that are really strict on these food timelines. I looked them up last night because I can't ever remember. I just do what I'm told. Uh, but they suggest that zero to four months, babies have a liquid diet, formula or milk. And then at four months, you can start in, in I cannot talk, introducing. You can start introducing soft foods and cereals and pureed soft foods, not any of the hard foods, but to potatoes and stuff. And then from six to eight months, you can have all of those foods and you can start introducing more pureed foods. And then they say that they recommend that not until 12 months do you introduce nuts and other things that might be allergens, strawberries. I find that interesting because apparently floating solo down the river can happen at three months. I find it interesting that we have these strict regulations and timelines for when you can introduce foods. And I, I point all of that out to say that none, nobody, nobody in their right mind would say, I'm going to take this small basket and place my child in it and set him in the river. I'm not going to do that when Tabitha hits three months old. 
I'm not even going to do it because it's pointed out that he was placed in the reeds near the bank. And it's speculated that that was done so he wouldn't float away and that he would be protected. But we still wouldn't think that that was sane. If I told you that when Tabitha hits three months, I'm going to put her in a basket and I'm going to place her in the brush near the banks of the river so that she doesn't float away, you would do something about it. But that's exactly what Moses' mom does, and she does it because she wants to protect him. I cannot imagine the emotional stress that is needed to cause this extreme measure. The emotional trauma that she had to be going to to say, the best thing I can do for my kid is float him down the river. Again, we often feel the most helpless and abandoned when we're facing issues with our children. Pharaoh orders all of the male children to be thrown into the river so that they die. And so they do the only thing that they can. They put him in a basket and float him down the Nile. But as we looked at, God is in control. Because God is the one that leads, Mo- leads Pharaoh to make this decree. Apart from this decree, Moses' mom doesn't put him in the basket. Apart from this decree, and apart from her putting him in the basket, Moses isn't raised in Pharaoh's house and doesn't have the experiences that he does in order to do what he does later in the book. And so Moses is nourished by his mother. He is taken back to his mother who nourishes him. And I can only imagine the amount of prayer that she poured over him for that period of time in which she was nursing him. You think you've prayed for your child when you know that you only have them for a given amount of time and then they're going to Pharaoh's house. The Pharaoh that hates you, the Pharaoh that wants everybody dead is going to raise them. I can only imagine the prayers that she pours over this child as she is taking care of him while he's in her care. And as I mentioned, the narratives of the Old Testament, often the question we ask is, what does this tell us about God? And as we learn about God in this, we can also learn about prayer. I think that this chapter may be one of the really helpful chapters in understanding prayer for us. Because this is the thought. God does not remove Moses from the situation, nor does he strike down Pharaoh, who dares to oppose him, both of which he certainly could have done. I think about this situation, and I think, how would we have prayed if we were in this situation, if this was happening to us? And you were told that your children had to be killed. How would we pray? How would we resolve it? Because what we tend to do when we see oppression coming is we pray that God would just overthrow them and that God would take them down. And what we see is that God continues to allow this to happen. God doesn't miraculously intervene in some supernatural way and save Moses. God doesn't miraculously have somebody come assassinate Pharaoh. God allows Pharaoh to make this decree and allows Moses to be put in the river and allows Moses to be adopted by the condemner's daughter. And so I think there's something we can learn about the way we pray in this. All of this to say, this is what I think we see when we look at these 10 verses of chapter 2. 
God uses even the most difficult circumstances of our lives to prepare us for his purposes. God takes even those most difficult circumstances in our lives and uses them to prepare us for his purpose. The reason I emphasized the connection to chapter 1 and God, the sense of God's abandonment is because often those most difficult times for us are when we feel abandoned by God. But God uses those situations to shape us and prepare us to fulfill his purposes in our lives. Sometimes it prepares others. Moses' mom, the difficult circumstances she endured didn't really prepare her, what we see anyway, for his purpose. It prepared Moses for his purpose. We see Moses is prepared through the difficult circumstances as he is placed on the Nile and in the rest of the circumstances. And then we have Joseph as well. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. But God uses it to put him in command in Egypt. And in fact, when he faces his brothers, do you remember what he said? He said, I have no ill will toward you because you intended it for my harm. But God intended it for the good. God allowed that to happen so that I could be here and fulfill his purpose in saving my family. Thus leading the way for Moses as well. We have Israel and Egypt. Their time in Egypt prepares them for God's purposes. If you remember any of the laws in the Old Testament about how you're supposed to treat foreigners... They're always referenced back to remember that you were once a foreigner in Egypt. God's purpose for them to be the light of the world and to share the good news pre-Jesus, but it's still, they were to be his people and they were to do what we are to do. And they were prepared in their time in Egypt. Jesus on the cross if it wasn't for the difficult circumstances that Jesus endured, God's purpose would not have been fulfilled. The temptations that were hurled at Jesus about, call, if you're really the son of God, call the angels and they'll save you. The temptations that Satan throws at Jesus in Matthew 4. Jesus could have saved himself from those things. And Jesus could have bypassed those difficulties and the persecution and the torture and the murder. But if he had bypassed it, God's purpose wouldn't have been fulfilled. And we ultimately, we see it in ourselves as well. Because we can look back either on our own lives or the lives of people we know and see where those difficult circumstances prepared them. But much like Israel and the way that they were supposed to be God's people and reaching out, but often failed, we see the same thing because we have that choice. We can either allow God to use those circumstances to shape us and to form us and to use us for his purpose, or we can be bitter about them and wallow in self-pity and bitterness and poor choices because of what has happened. And that's what Israel tends to do when we watch them throughout the rest of the Old Testament. 
but we do the same thing. But I think what we do is we, we repeatedly see time and again that the most important things that God has done do not happen without pain. I think of the number of people that I've watched deal with loved ones who suffered from debilitating diseases, whether it be Alzheimer's or something else, and they use that opportunity to grow, and it gives them the ability to be compassionate and comforting to other people who are dealing with those same issues in their lives. And I've watched other people. We've all seen this. The people that use those to comfort others and then the people that use those to just be driven into self-pity and bitterness and resentment and destructive choices. The most important things that God has done never happen apart from pain. We we understand this idea that pain brings growth on the most basic levels because we see it in athletes. Athletes do not prepare for their sport apart from pain. Or if you want to go a little bit different, I think probably tougher than a lot of athletes, but we wouldn't think so, but ballerinas. To be able to stand on the very tips of their toes and support all of their body weight, the amount of physical pain and the bleeding and the nastiness that they go through to do that, they can't do their big fancy shows effortlessly without pain leading up to it. Or guitar players that are amazing and really good and successful, but the pain and the bloody fingers that they dealt with in preparation and practice, learning how to play. Personally, a more humorous way that I've seen this is when I was an undergrad, I was serving part-time as a youth minister at a church. The youth group consisted probably 90% junior high girls. And I thought for sure that the Catholics were right and purgatory was real and I was there. There wasn't a week that went by that somebody didn't go home crying because this 22, 23-year-old football player didn't know how to be nice and gentle to junior high girls and say, hey, don't do that because you're being stupid without making them cry and feel bad and hurt their feelings. Because if you didn't know this, junior high girls have a lot of feelings. And now I look back on that and laugh because I realize with four daughters at home that God was preparing me through all of that pain to have these daughters. God uses the pain in our lives to shape us and prepare us for what we're going to face and to fulfill his purposes. He uses even the most difficult circumstances in our lives to prepare us to fulfill his purpose. Whether those be things that we can laugh at or things that still make us cry when we think about them. I've seen people who have had to bury their toddler and younger infant children. But often they're the ones that are the most compassionate when somebody else suffers a loss. They're the ones that understand that you don't have any words to fix it and that nothing you say can help. I've watched people endure the pain of miscarriages and infertility and have to deal with that, but to see them come out on the other side and be compassionate and loving and empathetic to people that are enduring the same things. God uses those difficult circumstances in our lives to prepare us for his purpose. 
It builds maturity. Sometimes it builds humility. We're going to see that with Moses. Some of the difficult circumstances he endures knock him down a notch or two and humble him. they, They built compassion and empathy to sit with people and love people in the midst of their pain. And so the question that I want to propose to you is how might this truth that you see on the screen, how might this truth that God uses even the most difficult circumstances in our lives to prepare us for his purpose, how might that truth change the way that you view, respond to, and pray about the difficult circumstances that you face? Because then we begin to realize that we aren't to pray, God, remove us from this circumstance so much as God use this to shape me. May I cooperate with your work in my life. Because God uses these, but we have to allow him to. Moses could have been bitter. Moses' mom could have been bitter and said, fine, God, if you don't want me to have any kids, and chucked him in the river. But she didn't. But we've seen people that do that. And so we have to cooperate with God's working in our lives. And so how might this truth change the way that you view and respond to and pray?